Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, July 7th, 2022. Our Torah portion this week, the Parsha of Chukas, is a strange blend of law and narrative. We begin with the mysterious, complicated ritual of Para Aduma, the calf with reddish hair, which is used when a person comes into contact with death. And then we have the account of the death of Miriam, the older sister of Moshe and Aharon. And that sets the stage for perhaps the lowest point of Moshe's leadership when he hits the rock to bring forth water for his thirsty people. And the simplest and most profound theme that emerges from this interplay is that while death is certainly a physical phenomenon, it is also a deeply emotional and deeply spiritual part of life. And it is an essential part of life. And so, Perhaps you may think it's ironic, but this week is an opportunity to think about what our life means and how we want to be remembered after our lives are over. And for very good reason, many people think about what will be inscribed on their burial monument, their matseva. And this exercise need not be a morbid discussion or thought process, but on the contrary, it should be life-affirming as a person considers what they want or hope their life means to others and how to live now in order to reach that. I have given uh, instructions to my family that I do not want any canned, often repeated phrases on my matseva, and I have told them, if they engrave something like, forever in our hearts, I will come back to haunt them. But that's just me. But now... There is a new approach. There is a new opportunity for how to do this. And I saw this last week in the New York Times. The New York Times reported on a new, new to me, a new trend. I have not seen this anywhere yet, but I guess it's just a matter of time. In cemeteries, from Alaska to Israel, families are memorializing their loved ones with the deceased's most cherished recipes carved in stone on the matseva, on the monument. 
These dishes, mostly desserts, give relatives a way to remember the sweet times and, they hope, bring some joy to visitors who discover them among the more traditional monuments. So, Douglas Keister, who's a photographer and an author, Douglas Keister said, you only have one chance to make a last impression. And he has written several books about cemeteries. Just by the way, Douglas Keister, for his own memorial, he plans a bench with the inscription, Keister's Go Here. Jonathan Modlick is the owner of Modlick Monument Company in Columbus, Ohio, and he is the president of the Monument Builders of North America. And he says, we use cemetery memorials as an art form. It's our job as memorialists. I have to confess that's the first time I've seen that word also. It's our job as memorialists to capture a portion of that story of the person's life that can be told in future generations. The recipe for Ida Kleinman's nut roll cookies, her most popular recipe, can be found in Hebrew on her tombstone in Rehovot Cemetery, which is in Rehovot, Israel. Mrs. Kleinman was born in Romania she had been married to a Holocaust survivor and she used to stuff her dough with ground pecans and strawberry jam, her son says. And when he goes to visit the grave his parents share, he likes to sit and watch the passers-by. I just want people to notice the stone, he said, adding that he has seen some of them jot down the recipe. One woman who's buried in Iowa with her favorite holiday cookie recipe on her monument, her daughter said, a cemetery does not have to be a place of sadness. It can be a place of great memories. It might, stir, it might spur people to talk about the good memories instead of just the last memory. Coincidentally, there is a beautiful lyric article in yesterday's New York Times written by Brian Washington. And the title of this article is A Great Biscuit is a Miracle of Care. Now, this article moved me very deeply, first of all, because it is beautifully written, but secondly, because I have been eating biscuits my entire life, and I have been making biscuits for my family and friends for over 50 years, and I take great pride in them. 
And he writes, a good biscuit is a miracle. A good biscuit in many ways is an act of generosity. At the heart of it, you're looking to make a dish that makes your people feel good. And what really makes a great biscuit are the hands behind it. It's the accumulation of memory and desire and experience, the labor behind biscuit making, or really any kind of cooking, is a sharing of care that I've received myself. If we're lucky, we can hope to find ways to redistribute it. And being remembered by a recipe on a burial monument can express that. It can express much more than just the food, but it can express the caring, the sharing, the generosity that that recipe reflects. So I actually think it's a good idea Though I do suggest we widen the category of recipes beyond just food. And so tonight, I invite you to consider which recipe for food or for life would you want to be remembered by? Leadership is the other theme at the heart of this week's Torah portion, Chukas, as well as the last couple of weeks and the next few weeks, this section of the Torah. In this week's Torah portion, we learn complicated, multiple lessons about leadership from Miriam, the leadership of Moshe and Aharon. Next week, we will learn about the leadership of Balak, as he tries mistakenly to protect his nation. One person who has much to teach us about leadership, a great leader on many levels, is the late and very beloved Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein of Blessed Memory. Rav Aaron Lichtenstein was a world-renowned expert in deciding questions in Jewish law. He was a scholar, a teacher, a mentor, a role model. Seven years ago, I heard his son, Rabbi Moshe Lichtenstein, speak about his father. And he said, seven years ago, my father, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, has become a new posek, a new expert decider of Jewish law. Now, that was a very surprising comment to hear because, number one, Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein has been a renowned 
authority in Jewish law for decades. And number two, his son, Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, was speaking about his father just a few weeks after his father had passed away. So what did he mean? It sounded very strange to hear his son say that at that moment after his father's passing, to refer to him as a new posek, a new authority in Jewish law. But then he told us this story. And he told us that this story had happened five days earlier before we heard him speak. Again, several weeks after his father, Revaron Lichtenstein, passed away. And the story is as follows. There is a man who was a lawyer. And the man was in a meeting with a client. And this lawyer was giving tax advice. And the client wanted to do something that would cut corners. It would have been a very large tax saving. Objectively, there was a great need to make use of this legal strategy. It was a little bit of a gray area, but the client was pressing him, his lawyer, to agree to this technique. And the lawyer was about to agree to it. But before he did, he said, I need to wait a moment. Please excuse me. And the lawyer walked out of the meeting and he went into another room. And he asked himself, what would Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein say about this idea? And again, this is several weeks after Rav Lichtenstein had passed away. But this lawyer went into another room and he asked himself, what would Rabaran say about agreeing to his client's request? And he knew the answer would be no. And so this lawyer came back into the meeting with his client and he refused to go along with this questionable scheme. So Rav Moshe Lichtenstein, Rav Aaron's son, told us this story and explained that leadership is not just what you say or what you do. It's also what you stand for. What people see when they see you in their mind's eye. I think that's a great story, and I think it is a great and fitting tribute to the magnificent Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein. But it's also a great question for me to ask myself and for you to ask yourself. If someone was in a dilemma, someone you know, maybe someone you do not know, and they took a moment to think, what would Whitman say? 
would they conclude? And if you're not satisfied with that answer, what can you do now to change it? It's something to think about on this Shabbos. This Shabbos when what we study in the Torah highlights what good leadership should be. Another great leader whose yard site was observed last Shabbos is the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson of blessed memory. Last week, in advance of the Rebbe's yard site last Shabbos, Sivan Rahav Meir was interviewed and she was asked, what is the most beautiful story you have ever heard about the Lubavitcher Rebbe? There are a lot to choose from. She thought about it for a while and then she answered with this following story. Years ago, decades ago, Rabbi Moshe Feller was at that time the chief Chabad emissary in Minnesota, the state of Minnesota. And he was asked to write an article for a newspaper on Judaism. So he wrote this article and he tried to explain in the article what Torah does for another person. What does it mean to study Torah? What does it do for you to live a life of Torah? And he wrote the following image. He wrote that when a person faints and loses consciousness, it is said that you must get close to their ear and shout their name in order for them to wake up. Someone faints, they lose consciousness, so you shout, Michael, Michael, loudly to get them to wake up. I, I'm not standing by that medical advice. I'm just saying, this is the article that this rabbi wrote. And he wrote in the same way, when a person is far removed from their Judaism, they're far removed from their identity and from their soul. We need to shout their name to them. We need to remind them, you are a Jew. Remember who you are. Remember what your mission is in life in order to wake them up spiritually. Okay, that was his article. <clears throat> Rabbi Feller sent his article to the Lubavitcher Rebbe for his approval. And the Lubavitcher Rebbe sent it back to him with only one word changed. The Rebbe had crossed out the word shout and written next to it whisper. Don't shout 
in the other person's ear, but whisper into their ear. Because the Lubavitcher Rebbe understood how do we awaken those who are spiritually unconscious? How do we address those who are separated from their roots as Jews? This man, Rabbi Schneerson, who influenced so many, he recommends that the approach that we have to have is not to shout out them. Don't roar at them with your beliefs and your certainty, but rather whisper. Because if you're trying to influence a person in a spiritual manner, you're entering a delicate place, the place of the soul. Don't approach them with brutality. Approach them with confidence, but also with love. With determination, yes, but also with tenderness. And that is the message and the model of a great leader. <clears throat> Allow me to share with you an insight into our Parsha from Dr. Rakefet Ben Yishai, a teacher in Israel. There's a story about a child who visited the circus and he saw a large elephant tethered to a very small stake in the ground, keeping him in place. And the child asked some of the adults that were around why the elephant didn't just easily pull up the stake and run away. So the people at the circus told him that they had tied this elephant to this stake when he was small and weak and the stake was bigger and stronger than he was. And in those days, it was impossible for this little elephant to pull up the stake. But years passed and the elephant grew and got stronger, but in the eyes of the elephant, pulling up that stake was still impossible. Even though it was clear to anyone else who would see this, that just a tiny pull on the stake by this powerful, now powerful elephant would set him free. But his lack of awareness of his own strength and growth prevented him from trying to free himself. In our Torah portion, we mention several stages in our journey through the desert from Egypt to Israel that lasted 40 years. And in our Torah portion, we mention Nachal Zered, the Zered River. For about 38 years, B'nai Israel, the Jewish people, did not succeed in crossing this river. They did not succeed in advancing their journey 
into the land of Israel. They were wandering in the desert for this whole time. Now, we would expect that a river lying between the Jewish people's encampment and the land of Israel that prevented their being able to enter for 38 years, this river must have been a wide, deep, raging river to have prevented pulling forward and crossing in order to reach their destination. And yet our sages tell us that Nachal Zered was not a dangerous, deep, fast-moving river that would have been objectively difficult to cross. In fact, Nachal Zered was a tiny stream. You could jump over it. Amazing. The same people who crossed the Red Sea in their exodus from Egypt were not able to cross a small, still stream. Such a tiny obstacle separated them from the promised land. And so, Dr. Akefet Ben Yishai explains the problem was not the stream, the problem was the people. Because the Jewish people, remember, we learned this in the parsha a couple of weeks ago, they had disparaged the land of Israel through the negative report of the spies, and they had still not completely rectified that sin. And so as long as they did not truly want to enter the land, even the smallest stream seemed in their eyes like a mighty river that they dare not attempt to cross. And it was only after about 38 years of soul-searching and self-rectification that they were able to appreciate their own true strength and cross the stream to finally reach their destination. It should be clear that this is not just a story about an elephant, and it's not just a discussion about a stream in the desert, but this is meant to make us consider the small stake to which we are tethered and the little stream that seemingly we are unable to cross. It's actually about us. Finally, allow me to share an insight that I heard from my friend and colleague, Rabbi Daniel Karabkin in Toronto. <clears throat> so also in our Torah portion this week, the Barsha of Chukas, we have the following verse. Az Yashir Yisrael es Hashira Hazos. Then Israel sang this song. Our Torah portion has a song in it. 
Az Yashir Yisrael es Hashira Hazos. Then Israel sang this song. Now, that is similar to and should remind us about an almost identical passage much earlier in the Torah that occurred 40 years earlier, just after the splitting of the Red Sea. And the Jewish people walk through on dry land and Paro's army is drowned by the waters of the sea. Az Yashir Moshe Uvenei Yisrael Es Then Moshe and the children of Israel sang this song. And that's the famous Az Yashir that is part of our daily prayers. That's a magnificent prayer. We say it every single morning. So it's quite curious that almost the same words earlier was Uz Yashir Moshe Uvenei Yisrael Hazos, then Moshe and the children of Israel sang this song, and in our Torah portion, Uz Yashir Yisrael Hazos, then Israel sang this song. But let's focus on two differences between these two songs. The first difference is that the first song, Az Yashir Moshe Vnei Yisrael, the song that we incorporate as a prayer that we say every day, that song was sung after a magnificent historic miracle, the splitting of the Red Sea. And the Shira, the song of praise that the Jewish people sang, was a response of jubilation and awe at the miracle that they had just experienced. Our Shira, the song in our Torah portion, nothing momentous happened. They're traveling through the desert. They're near the end of the 40 years in the desert, but not completely there. Why sing a song now? What is the occasion of this song? The song in our Torah portion follows the last time that the Jewish people complain. Because earlier in our Parsha, the famous narrative, the Jewish people complained that they do not have water. And that leads to the event of Moshe hitting the rock. And then the Jewish people complain about the food that they had to eat every day, the man, the manna from heaven. They complained about that as they had done a number of times before. But after that, after the beginning of our Torah portion, the Jewish people do not complain again in the Torah. There is no further complaint to the Jewish people in the rest of the Torah. This is the last time. In other words, finally, after almost 40 years, the Jewish people have internalized the lesson that there is no reason to complain because everything God did or did not do was actually for their benefit. 
even if they didn't see it right away. The Oz Yashir in our Parsha, the song of praise that was sung in our Torah portion, is not after a monumental event, a supernatural event. It's a song that is sung after an insight, after an epiphany, that the challenges they had faced and would face in the future would strengthen them, would refine them. And that explains the second difference in these two songs. Earlier, 40 years before, Az Yashir Moshe Uvenei Yisrael. Then, after the splitting of the Red Sea, Moshe and the children of Israel sang a song of praise. The children of Israel were amazed at the wonder of the splitting of the Red Sea. But now, almost 40 years later, in our Torah portion, the Torah says, Az Yashir Yisrael. Israel sings no longer B'nai Yisrael, no longer the children of Israel. They have matured. They've grown up. They have developed with this understanding that in every situation we face, as individuals, as a community, as part of mankind, we hope to reach an epiphany in how we perceive it. Preferably, we'll do this early on, but hopefully at least near the end that I have learned from this. I didn't want it, whatever that experience was. Maybe I didn't like it. It was painful. I still have scars from it. But I have grown as a result. And I will be stronger and better in the future as a result. That's the meaning of Az Yashir Yisrael in our Torah portion. Then Israel sang with this awareness, with this understanding that what had happened to them was for their own growth. May every one of us reach a point in everything we face that we too can sing Az Yashir Yisrael. Then Israel sang a song. My friends, I want to wish you a beautiful evening and a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing you soon in person.